0: When we are gone and forgotten, our buildings will keep on proclaiming that here have lived people who had a heart for the needs of children. Reverend Klein, 1929.
1: Even though the buildings are gone, my son Andy and I have uncovered the long forgotten stories of the people who lived there, worked there, and died there. They were at the same time ordinary and extraordinary, and we hope you will be inspired by the sacrifices they made by sharing their stories we ensure that the people who had a heart for the needs of children will be remembered. Welcome to The Homes. My name is Karen Thaliker.
0: And I'm Andrew Newell. We're your hosts as we explore the challenges and joys of life at an institution housing orphans and old folks in rural Iowa during the year 1929. Let's begin on Christmas Eve, 1946. The congregation was gathered at St. John's Lutheran Church in western Iowa. The church was between the little towns of Palmer and Manson in a place known as Lizard Township. It was an oasis in the middle of gravel roads and cornfields. Near the brick church stood a once-fine parsonage next door that overlooked the cemetery filled with friends and relatives. The people gathered solemnly, not because it was Christmas Eve, but because in the parsonage, the pastor's wife lay dying from complications of Addison's disease. That night on Christmas Eve, she would leave behind her husband, her five young children, her parents, and four siblings at just 38 years old.
1: Her name was Erna Klein-Thaliker, and she was my grandma. My dad Bill was 12 years old when his mother died. My Aunt Ruth was 13. Uncles Jim and John were six and four. My Aunt Naomi was just three. Life would go on, but it would never be the same. As I grew up, I loved hearing about my grandma Erna. Her brothers and sisters told us stories. My Aunt M was especially attentive to us. She was at every major life event and celebration that we had, graduations, weddings, baptisms. Aunt M had promised my grandma that she would not be forgotten, and she never was. I cherish every time that someone who knew her tells me that I look like her, or that I laugh like her, or that I remind them of her. Erna's father, William Klein, was a German Lutheran pastor. Erna named her first son, my father, after him. William was born in Germany in 1871. His parents sent him to America when he was 19 years old. He met my great-grandma, Emma Grosshans, through her brother. She was born in Illinois and was a first-generation American. Emma helped William acclimate and assimilate to life in the United States, but he never lost his love of Germany or his love for the parents and siblings he left behind. He may have changed his name to William from Wilhelm to reflect his new home, but he never lost his German accent. William and Emma were married in 1899 and moved to the plains of North Dakota where William had been called to serve. His parish was in a place that the locals called Dogtown because dogs would trail along with the wagons as the pioneer families traveled to church. The Kleins stayed there for 21 years. William and Emma's five children, including my grandma Erna, were born there a sixth child, would be buried in the cemetery there. My father took me there about 20 years ago, and I was struck by how stark and empty the landscape was, but also how beautiful. It was a hard life for them, but a good life. Despite the vast horizons, this land was not empty of people. Homesteaders like the Kleins claimed plots of land, while the remnants of the Mandan Native Americans lived nearby, continuing their agricultural lifestyle, even as the U.S. government reduced the size of their reservations. Grandpa Klein was homesteading 40 acres. They had every intention to stay in North Dakota, but events were occurring hundreds of miles away in the river town of Muscatine, Iowa. These events would not only change their lives, but the lives of countless others. In
0: 1920, Muscatine, Iowa was an urban metropolis compared to the plains of North Dakota. It was a city of 16,000 people, with shops and restaurants and railroads and bustling river commerce. The Heinz Company built a production facility in Muscatine in 1893, the first one built outside of Pittsburgh. According to news articles, it originally focused on sauerkraut, horseradish, and pickles, but added ketchup in 1898 because tomatoes grew so well in the region. Famous for its button factories, Muscatine was also known as the place where Mark Twain's brother had once owned a newspaper and where Twain himself lived for a brief time in 1855. In his memoir Life on the Mississippi, he wrote, And I remember Muscatine, still more pleasantly for its summer sunsets. I have never seen any on either side of the ocean that equaled them. They used the broad, smooth river as a canvas and painted on it every imaginable dream of color. From the mottled daintinesses and delicacies of the opal, all the way up through the cumulative intensities to blinding purple and crimson conflagrations, which were enchanting to the eye but sharply tried it at the same time. All the Upper Mississippi region has these extraordinary sunsets as a familiar spectacle. It is the true sunset land. I am sure no other country can show so good a right to the name. Mark Twain described a beautiful scene, but Muscatine had many sides. It was a rough and tough river town, but it also had a vibrant community of German immigrants and Lutheran schools and churches. Part of the mission of the churches was dedicated to charity and helping those in poverty. What we might refer to now as a social safety net did not exist at this time. Veterans or war widows might have a small Civil War pension, but so many of the elderly, disabled, and women and children were dependent on the charity of independent patrons and organizations. It was in this spirit of helping others and with deep faith that a Lutheran pastor from Muscatine named Heinrich Reinemund and several of his colleagues formed the German Evangelical Society for Christian Charities in 1895. Their specific task was to provide support for five orphans in the community. A plot of land with a large house just outside the city limits of Muscatine was donated by Mrs. Elizabeth Hershey the widow of Muscatine lumber tycoon, Benjamin Hershey. He came to Muscatine from Pennsylvania, where he was said to be the distant cousin of the founder of the Hershey Candy Company. In Muscatine, the Hershey's made their fortune and were known for their acts of charity, including the funding of landmarks like the Hershey Hospital. In 1896, the Hershey's house and surrounding barns and land would be used to provide a home not only for the original five orphans, but also for more and more children whose parents could not care for them. Some of these children were known as half-orphans if one parent had died and the other had to work and couldn't care for the children. Orphanages were common in the United States during this time. For some people, the word orphanage brings to mind images of the musicals Annie and Oliver, or maybe even Spencer Tracy as Father Flanagan in Boys Town. The reality of life at an American orphanage is, of course, different than its portrayal on screen. One writer described the time period of 1854 to the mid-1960s as, quote, the season of orphanages, end quote. Without government programs, it was the churches and other private organizations that stepped in to care for displaced children and the elderly. They largely relied on donations to support their operations when the economy faltered, crops failed, or when people were unemployed. These institutions and their residents were not exempt from suffering or foreclosure. Life was not glamorous or perfect in an orphanage. It was difficult. The children who lived there had experienced different types of trauma and grief in the homes they came from. The adults who worked there were paid very little and shared the burden of caring for so many children 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The orphanage in Muscatine became known as the Lutheran Homes, or simply the Homes, because it didn't just house children. It also accepted elderly people, often called the old folks. They were also referred to as inmates. In nineteen oh three, the Home started publishing a German language newspaper to request donations and let subscribers know about the value and importance of the mission of the homes. By nineteen eleven, the homes was caring for about forty children and twenty five old folks. Reverend Reinemund r- ran the facility as superintendent alongside his wife. There was a never ending battle to raise enough money to stay open. The 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week care of the young and old took its toll on both Reverend Reinemund and his wife. They were fortunate to have devoted workers who cared about the children and the old folks as much as they did, particularly Ms. Louise Wittig, who cared for the children and was considered a mother to all. Despite her austere appearance, she loved them all deeply and fiercely. The Reinemunds considered leaving or retiring, but for a variety of reasons that will become clear. No pastor or his wife seems to be willing to take the call. After Reverend Reinemann died in 1918, the homes went through several temporary superintendents until someone suggested contacting William Klein in North Dakota, now 50 years old, to resume its leadership.
1: Reverend Klein at first refused the call. They had built a life in North Dakota. To be the superintendent of the homes was certainly important work, but would come at too great a cost for his family. At the time that the Kleins were offered the position in Muscatine, their oldest daughter, Sammy, was attending courses at Wartburg College in Waverly, Iowa. When she learned that her father had been offered the job but initially turned it down, she asked him to reconsider. Sammy knew how important the homes in Muscatine were because, as Reverend Klein would soon learn, Sammy's college roommate, Olga, was an orphan who grew up at the homes. The Kleins were so moved by Olga's story that they accepted the call. They left their life in North Dakota, and instead of living in a home of their own, they lived on the second floor of the old folks' home. For the next 20 years, the Kleins would call the homes their home. Growing up, I heard stories from time to time about the homes, but couldn't visualize the depth of what it meant when someone said, your grandpa ran the orphanage in Muscatine. About four years ago, I attended a Klein cousins reunion with my dad, My grandma Erna had four siblings, and many of my dad's first and second cousins were at this reunion. As they reminisced, the conversation turned to the orphanage and the old folks' home, and the stories were incredible. My dad was born in 1934, and his cousins were also born about the same time. So when they went to visit their grandpa and grandma Klein, they went to the homes. They played with the children who lived there. They helped the farmer who grew food for the homes. The cousins talked about the night the barn burned down. They laughed when they remembered that a circus had once wintered at a farm near the orphanage and the orphans would sneak out at night and play with the circus animals. I wanted to know more. So when I got home from that reunion, I started searching the internet for more information. What I found surprised me, or rather what I didn't find surprised me. On almost every site that referenced orphanages in Iowa, not one mentioned Muscatine. I decided to dig a little deeper and call the Lutheran Church Archives. Surely they must have lots of information about the orphanage and the old folks' home, but the archivist said she didn't. In fact, she said she didn't even know the Muscatine Orphanage existed until about a month before my call. She said she'd been digging through a desk and found some blueprints from the 1950s. It said there was a boy's cottage at the Muscatine Homes. That's all she had. To this day, I'm still unsure... ...as to why the existence of the homes, particularly the orphanage, was largely left behind. Even the people of present-day Muscatine have either forgotten or never knew that there once was an orphanage on the outskirts of town. My big break came when Andy told me that he was taking a class where he had to write a research paper using predominantly primary source materials he said he wanted to write his paper about the orphanage. I knew this was my chance to provide logistical support to him as he used his skills to rediscover our history. As the process started, I asked my friend Anne, what if I found out my grandfather was a horrible person or my family has skeletons in the closet? She laughed because my family is full of Lutheran ministers, but added, start down the path, gather as much information as you can Find your family's history. Don't create it. Your grandpa was a real person. Let him be a man of his times. My son Andy's purpose was to learn as much as he could and get an A in the class. I don't think I realized it at the time, but my purpose was to meet my grandma Erna. She was 15 years old when she left the plains of North Dakota for the city of Muscatine. She went from a house of seven to a house of 107. I felt her hand guiding me throughout this. There's still a senior living center on the site of the orphanage, and old folks home, and Andy and I visited often during the semester he was working on his paper. At one point, he needed to get back to the college, but I was looking through some papers. I asked him to just be patient for a few more minutes and guess what I found? I found my grandparents' wedding pictures. My grandma loved the home so much that when she and my grandpa Arnold got married, they were married in the chapel there. I had no idea of how profoundly the Lutheran homes had influenced her life, but I do now. And that's why I feel so compelled to share these stories with all of you. This isn't just the story of my grandma Erna or my great grandparents. It's the story of the orphans and half orphans who called this place home and the families who placed them there. It's the story of the old folks who were able to spend their final years not alone in poverty, but in simple yet comfortable surroundings with people who cared for them. It's the story of the women who cared for and loved hundreds of children throughout the years. It's the story of all of the workers who were so committed to the children and elderly living a life of dignity and respect that they often donated their own meager wages to support the mission. It's the story of the schedules and the regimens that kept order 24 hours a day. It's the story of the city of Muscatine and its churches and organizations that helped the homes provide for its residents and bring special moments of joy to both young and old. Ultimately, these are stories about lives lived in the service of others. They are stories of faith, love, and hope. They are examples of how and why we should care for the most vulnerable in our society. But these are not stories of perfect people. When my friend Anne said, let him be a man of his times, that means to me that it's okay to share some of the problematic aspects in addition to the amazing things. I think in our country's history, we have the desire to sort of gloss over things that make us uncomfortable. And I don't want to do that here. Being people of their times doesn't excuse when people used what we would consider discriminatory language or have outdated ideas about how the world was supposed to look. The purpose we would use it for is to discuss how we got to where we are now and how some of the same prejudices still exist. The people who lived and worked at the homes were not perfect. Their stories are so compelling, not because they are superhuman. They are compelling because they made mistakes. They were flawed and they just kept going and doing the best they could to make the homes a real home.
0: We thought long and hard about the best way to share these stories with all of you. The monthly newsletter that started in 1903 helped congregations and individual donors feel like they were part of the homes, and so ultimately that's how we decided to organize this. It appears several people wrote for the newsletter each month, but in each issue, William Klein had his own column. We're going to go on a journey together through what life at the homes was like in the year 1929. If you like this, we can journey through more years with the Kleins and the children and the old folks. We have so many amazing stories to share, but let's not get ahead of ourselves.
1: Check out our Instagram at Life at the Homes for photos and additional content. The Kleins had retired about five years before the death of my grandma Erna, but I found the note of her passing in the monthly newsletter. Here's what the editor of the newsletter wrote. It
0: is our sad duty to record the passing from us of Mrs. Erna Klein-Thaliker. Erna, as we all knew her, was the daughter of former Superintendent Reverend William Klein. She grew up here at the homes, a cheerful, sunny girl who made friends of all. Her love for others prompted her to work hard and faithfully for those here at the homes. Her interest in the homeless and helpless did not wane when she married Reverend Thaliker of Palmer, Iowa. On Christmas Eve, the kind Father in Heaven called her to her eternal reward. She leaves behind her sorrowing husband and five children, her parents, Reverend and Mrs. William Klein, two brothers, and a sister. It was in line with her close connection with the Lutheran homes that memorial gifts perpetuating this interest be given in her memory. In sending these gifts, the Reverend Thaliker wrote, It gave me a certain pleasure to be able to send to your institution memorial gifts, which were given in honor of my beloved wife by relatives and friends whose names I am listing. I say that it gives me some pleasure to do this because of the fact that my wife called that institution her home for about 20 years of her life. She knew of the work in the interest of God's children that is done there, and she had a very warm spot in her heart for the cause. It is through her, and also because I was there frequently, that I realized that little enough is given for such purposes. Since she had this interest and love, it provides some gratification that her death would prompt friends to contribute to the homes in memory of her. Thus God is glorified, and God's work is given an impetus, wishing a blessed new year, and with the confidence that the work of the homes will be prospered because of the love to Christ that is developed in God's children. I am most sincerely yours, Arnold Thaliker." The editor closes by saying, "...may the eternal light shine upon her pathway, and may the loving arms of the kind and loving Father in heaven enfold those who now mourn their loss in his arms of love."
1: I believe that if Grandma Erna had lived, that she would have shared these stories with us, sharing them with you, is what she would have wanted, and as we do it, we feel her beside us. Thank you for that, and thank you for listening.
0: So, let's set the stage for the year 1929. As the year begins, the Kleins have been at the homes for about eight years. There are currently 52 children and 40 old folks in their care. The old Hershey home is still in use, but has been expanded. There is also a school for children grades kindergarten through eighth grade. The Holmes are experiencing difficult times. They borrowed money to expand, but now don't have the money to repay the bank. Of course, they have no way of knowing that the stock market crash is coming in October. We hope you join us in January of 1929 in episode two of The Holmes. This podcast was researched and hosted by Andrew Newell and Karen Thaliker, and sound was edited by Robert Newell. Special thanks to Wartburg College in Waverly, Iowa, for the use of their podcast studio.
1: If you have additional stories and information about the Lutheran homes of Muscatine from 1921 through 1941, please send us a direct message on our Instagram at Life at the Homes.